Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. In Genesis 1 through 11, as we've been making our way through this, the first book of the Bible, we saw at the beginning that God created a good world. A very good world, even at the end of the seventh day as God looked at his creation, he said that this was very good, very good in his sight, and he was pleased with it. And yet man, the crown of his creation, rebelled against him and sinned against him, and ever since, sin has been very much part of mankind. That no man escapes from sin. Man is indeed now born with a sin nature. And yet what we see is, you know, by the end of chapter 11, where the world is divided according to nations in their sin and different languages and there's great division and and they're all lost. The question comes, What is God's plan for this world? Does he care for this world? Does he care for the nations? Enter chapter 12 onwards, and this is God's answer, that he does care for the world, that he does care for the nations. And in order to achieve his plan, God chooses one pagan idolater named Abram. He too was lost in darkness, and God calls him out. And what's interesting is, in the call that is given to Abram, where there's blessing after blessing that is pronounced, that is promised to Abram, five times the word blessing is mentioned uh, in the first few verses of chapter 12. And what's interesting is, in the first 11 chapters, chapters 1 to 11 of Genesis, five times curses are mentioned. Exactly five times. And it's almost as though God is saying, my intention is to still bless this world. My intention is to bring that blessed state that was there in Eden. My intention is still to overcome the curse of sin and death and bring back my rule in such a way that my blessedness is experienced by everything in this world. And really when you think about even salvation for for us believers, when you think about it, you should think of it even in light of this big picture. That, you know, sometimes we just think of the spiritual aspect of it. Salvation is just forgiveness of sins and I'm made right with God. It is that. But it's part of the bigger picture of God's restoration of this sin-cursed world. That he will deliver everything in this world from the curse of sin and death and he will bring back his blessing and that will reign on this earth one day. And him him saving you and me as believers is part of that big plan. Now last week we saw of how God 
called out Abram. Now in that we saw that there was both a command and also promises given. The command was to leave that pagan life of idolatry, leave that life of darkness, even as the light of God's word came to him and gave him light. And there was also promises. And in these promises, there were, there were personal promises given, promises for the nation, and even global promises. Where Abraham was personally promised that he would be blessed in a personal way, that his name would be made great. And then from him, there would come a great nation. And this nation would have an influence on the rest of the world that God's ultimate purpose for choosing Abram and then this nation that will come about is so that his blessing, the blessing of salvation, would come to the rest of the nations of this world. So that's where we ended. And uh, if you remember last week, I said this, this passage, it, it serves us in different ways. In one sense, it serves as a paradigm of, of saving faith, of any believer's faith, of, of his calling and uh, how that believer lives. But then at the same time, it also serves as to, to tell us the specific role that the nation of Israel will have. And it also tells us how God is now going to advance his plan, how God is going to reverse the curse and bring about the restoration of the whole entire universe and how he is going to save sinners to himself and then ultimately redeem this world from the curse of sin and death. And so now we will see further how God, uh, pardon me, how Abram, responds to God in light of this call that has come to him. And even here, this is, again, part of that paradigm of, of a believer's faith, of how every believer responds to God when God's sovereign grace comes into their life. But also, there are things in here that we need to keep in mind that it's not an exact parallel, because some of the things that happened to Abram are specific things that were promised to Abram that will not apply to us. And so we should keep that in mind as well. But all in all, I pray that as we see how Abram responds, it would be an encouragement to us of what the Lord has done in us and how we need to continue to respond to the Lord and live in a way that honors the Lord. And I pray that that would even cause us to continue to worship Him and continue to help us walk in His ways. So Abram's response to God, and I've uh, divided this uh, portion into two sections. We'll look at Abram's obedient faith in verses 4 through 5, and in verses 6, or the last part of verse 5, all the way down to verse 9, we'll look at Abram's journey of faith. So first of all, let's look at Abram's obedient faith in verses 4 and 5. Now verse 4 says, So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him, and Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. 
Now, what's striking about this verse is the, the, the simplicity of this statement, how plainly it states about Abram's obedience. I mean, think about this for a moment, right? The Lord has appeared to Abram. He commands Abram to leave everything about his past life. Leave that behind and, and follow me, the Lord says. You know, leave your family heritage. Leave behind the name of your family, the name of your father. Leave the land that belong to, belongs to you and your family. Leave behind that family religion, perhaps, or that pagan, idolatrous uh, family religion that you have, God says to him. And then on top of that, it says here that Abram's 75 years old. I mean, he's not a young man. He's not a spring chicken. I mean, this is about the time when, you know, people, even in that day and age, would slowly settle down in their land and, you know, and, you know put their roots down to embark on something new, to leave everything behind, and even their, their family land on and venture out following the Lord? I mean, this is not something that you would think a man who is 75 years old uh, would do. And we also know from Genesis 11 and verse 30, that his wife Sarai is barren. They have no children. So God has promised to him, he's come to him, he said, leave everything behind, and I'm promising you the impossible, that you will, from you will come a great nation, even though you don't have a child, and I will promise land and blessing to this man who is 75 years old. I mean, it makes no sense, humanly speaking, to just leave whatever he knew, his family heritage, and, and just follow God. As far as the world is concerned, I mean, they would probably look at Abram and say, this is a foolish thing for him to do, to do this. But the text simply says, so Abram went as the Lord told him. Abram simply obeyed. No ifs, no buts, no nothing. He simply obeyed. But you say, why? I mean, why does Abram do this? Why does Abram obey the Lord? You know, some might say, well, well because of all the promises of that you know, he was given by the Lord. Yes, that's true in one sense. But here's the thing. If somebody came to you today and said, hey, leave everything behind and, and follow me and I will bless you so you can be a blessing to others. You're not going to follow that person. Why? Because first of all, you, you don't know that person. You don't, you don't trust that person. And then on top of that, you, uh, you know, you, you might not desire what that person is offering you. You know, I'm just pretty content with where I am. I know who you are, but I don't, I don't want that. I, I'm just pretty happy to be here. 
But what you see here is with the reason why Abram obeys God in both separating from his old way of life, his life of darkness and sin and idolatry, and he follows the Lord is because of these two things as well. Because now that the Lord has appeared to him and spoken to him, he now knows the Lord and he trusts him and he desires what the Lord wants for his life. You see, Abram's spiritual eyes have been opened and he sees the Lord for who he is. Abram recognizes that the one who has called him is the one true living God, unlike the false gods he worshipped previously. He recognizes that the Lord calling him to leave his past life of sin and idolatry is for his own good. He recognizes that the Lord is good and his intention for Abram is is good. It is to bless him. And as a result, Abram can be a blessing to others and ultimately bring salvation to the rest of the world. And it's not just that Abram's spiritual eyes have been opened. There's a change in desire for Abram as well. He's willingly forsaking his old life. See, he's not being forced against his will to leave all this behind and follow the Lord. He wants to do it. There's a change in the direction of his life. He wants to live according to the plan and purposes of the Lord. The Lord is now first priority in his life. The Lord is the one who sets the agenda for his life now. It's not Abram, it's the Lord. And so because Abram's darkened eyes have been opened and there's a change in his desires, Abram responds in obedient faith. See, what we must not forget even as we see this passage, is the reason that Abram's eyes were open and his desires were changed, this was because of the Lord's doing. Because of God's sovereign grace working in Abram's life to bring him spiritual life. Here's what Romans 4.17 says. As it is written, I have made you father of many nations. In the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. See, what this passage is saying that is that the God who brings things into existence out of nothing is the God who brings life from the dead. When there is no life, when there's deadness, that same God brings life. And that is what has happened in Abram's life. And he has responded in faith, in obedient faith. The Lord has to do the work, and then the people respond in obedient faith. 
In the book of Acts, we're told of a woman named Lydia who had some belief in God. But she didn't understand the gospel. She didn't trust in who Jesus was and what he had done on the cross, and it certainly didn't have an impact on her life. And then Acts 16, verse 14, it says, when the apostle Paul explained the gospel of Jesus Christ, it says, God opened her heart to respond to the gospel. God opened her heart to respond to the gospel. God has to work. He has to bring the spiritually dead person to life for anyone to respond to the call of the gospel. Now someone might say, but, hey, but, you know, I mean, I, I made the choice. I mean, I, I put my faith in the Lord. I put my faith in Jesus. And that's why I'm ultimately saved. You know, sometimes we can have such an elevated view of the, that, that faith response that we have, almost in an unhelpful way. You know, I like how one of my professors from seminary spoke about, spoke about this issue of faith. You know, he used the analogy of a professor saving a student from a fire. And he said that, you know, now suppose a reporter comes and asks that student, how did you get saved? And the student responds, well, obviously, because I was resting in the professor's arms. I mean, that's a bit silly, isn't it? Because the reality is the, the professor is the one who saved the student. You see, we are saved because God saves us in Christ. Faith is the, 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 the human angle, the human perspective of what has taken place with regards to what God has done. See, the student leaned on the professor to get out of the building. It's the professor who got out of the building that was on fire. It was not the student. Now, my professor explained it this way, quote, Faith is the trust that God will save us and God will fulfill his promise. Faith is a zero element. It just simply amplifies what God did and what God will do. Let me say that again. Quote, faith is the trust that God will save and God will fulfill his promises. Faith is a zero element. It simply amplifies what God did and, God, and what God will do. That's what faith is. See, if you're a Christian, if you're a true believer... This is what is true of you and me. We were spiritually dead. But then God's, God made us alive in Christ when the gospel came to us. And we have now new spiritual eyes and a new spiritual heart such that we can see our Lord for who he is. 
And we can see clearly what it is that he has done and what he will do. And we have new desires for him. And, and we desire to walk according to his purposes. And the faith that we have is simply as a result of God's working, that, that human perspective of seeing the Lord for who he is and what he has done and what he will do. It's simply a, a leaning on the Lord as we see who he is and what he's capable of and what he will do. And the evidence of somebody having saving faith then is then that person outwardly then lives a life of obedience to God and desires to live according to the purposes of God and wanting to make much of God. And that's what we see here with Abram. There's been a transformation. Abram sees the Lord for who he is. He wants to live for the Lord alone. And he wants to live for the purposes of God and make much of the Lord. And so that faith that now Abram possesses is seen in his obedience to the divine call where we are told Abram went as the Lord had told him. Now verse 5 says, And Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran and, sent, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Now verse 4 says that Lot went with him. Verse 5 says Abram took Lot. See, it's quite likely that both Lot and Sarai, they have also separated from Abram's father's household. They've also separated from that life of sin and idol worship. And they've turned to the God of Abram. In fact, if you turn to 2 Peter verse 2 and 7, Lot is called righteous Lot. What does that mean? That Lot was a believer. So it's quite likely that it was around this time that Lot became a believer. So Abram takes them along. And then it also says there that they took all their possessions and the people that they had acquired in Haran. Notice the, 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 the plural there. It doesn't say he took all his possessions. It says they took all their possessions. So it's quite likely that at this point, Abram has acquired a lot of wealth. Perhaps herds and flocks and, you know, in those days, that's how riches were counted. But it's also likely that, that even Lot also acquired some wealth, perhaps because of Abram's influence. And then it also says that they also took the people that they acquired in Haran. Now these are servants that Abram acquired and 
uh, quite likely even servants of Lot. Because then you'll see in, as we move to the next chapter in Genesis 13 and then even in Genesis 14, we see of how it talks about how Lot had his own herds and flocks and tents and so on. And then in verse chapter 14, it, it, it talks about how Abram took 300 mem- men, trained men of his household. Where did they come from? It's these people here. So there's a big group of people now, you, you know, some that belong to Lot, some that belong to Abram, and all of this is part of Abram's blessing, that personal blessing that God had promised to Abram, where I will bless you. So you're seeing here already Abram is being blessed, and that's also influencing Lot as well. Now one thing I want to point out here is that while Abram, in some sense, is a paradigm for every believer, this blessing here, this is a very specific blessing that was given to Abram and then later even to the nation of Israel, this material blessing. But we as believers now, we are not promised in this world any material blessing or physical prosperity in following the Lord in this age. We are not promised that. In fact, believers in this age will, you know, could be poor. In fact, you just look through the Bible, you see believers who are both rich and poor. You think of the disciples that Jesus called out, they were poor, poor fishermen. They didn't go on to be super rich people. They continued to be poor people. And yet we see people like Abram. We see people like Job. You know, last year we looked at the story of Lazarus and Mary and Martha, and we talked about how they were most likely a very rich family as well. So there's examples of believers who were both rich and poor. We're not promised material wealth in this world. We're not promised that we will have perfect health. Unlike the preachings of the health, wealth, and prosperity preachers. That is not there in the Bible, and that is not promised to believers in this age. But what we are promised as believers is this. There's spiritual blessings. There's the blessing of Forgiveness of sins, past, present, and future. There's the blessing of being part of God's family. There's the spiritual blessing of, of really every spiritual blessing in Christ. There's the blessing of future bodily resurrection. There's the blessing of a new heavens and a new earth. There's all these spiritual blessings and, and really even as the new heavens and the new earth come, that entirety of that blessed life is realized. And there, in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be some physical blessing as well realized, where everyone will live in that true blessed state under the rule of Jesus. But until that time, until that age, in in this age, Believers are never promised material blessings. And it doesn't therefore, unlike what the health, wealth, prosperity preachers 
uh, teach, it doesn't mean that therefore, because you are poor perhaps, or you have health issues, that somehow you have less faith, or that God's favor is not on you. Oh no, believer. Let me tell you this. If you have put your trust in Jesus and you are following him, that's the greatest evidence that God's favor is on you. It's not your circumstances. You know, I wonder if there's anyone listening here today and you don't follow Jesus or you don't know who Jesus is or you're like, I don't know, maybe I'll follow Jesus, maybe I won't. Let me tell you, friend, the, the, the call of Jesus is quite similar to the call of Abram. It's a call to deny yourself to deny your life of sin and relying on yourself and to fully follow him. It is a costly call. Yeah. Where you really have to deny yourself. But understand this. This call is for your own good. Because the more you remain in your sin... And the more you live according to that, the more you live according to the ways of the world, the more you live for self, that will lead to your ruin and ultimately eternal damnation. But Jesus, the Son of God, came into this world 2,000 years ago. And he died on the cross as payment for the sin of this world so that all who would turn to Jesus and put their trust in him would be made right with him. See, following Jesus doesn't mean that this is your best life now. But it does mean that you are made right with God and that that best life will come in the future when Jesus returns. Following Jesus doesn't mean that you will have a prosperous life here. Following Jesus doesn't mean that you will be rich materially in this world, but you will be rich spiritually speaking. Friend, if you are here today and you don't follow Jesus, let me ask you to humble yourself and turn to him. Turn to him today and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if you keep going down this way, the more you reject him, the more you live for yourself, the more you are hardening your heart. And if you respond in faith and you say, I believe. I believe in what Jesus has done. I believe in what he has done on the cross for me. Then turn from your sin. Deny yourself and follow him. It won't be perfect. None of us follow Jesus perfectly. But that needs to be the direction of your life. And that will be evidence that you truly have put your faith in Jesus. So what you see here is Abram 
has responded to God's call in obedient faith. Now secondly, let's just look at Abram's journey of faith. So he's put his, he's taken that initial step, response in faith, now he journeys forward. The last part of verse 5 all the way down to verse 9. It says, when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place, of, place at Shechem at the Oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So you can think about this. Abram is now with this big entourage of people and, and possessions, herds and flocks and whatever else. So this big, big, huge group is, is traveling. They're, they're up in Haran. So they've gone from Ur of Chaldeans. They've gone up north to Haran. There's all desert here. Now they're coming down. They're traveling south. They move down and enter into the land of Canaan. And they keep traveling south, passing through this land of Canaan. And, and then Abram reaches a place called Shechem. Now Shechem, it's almost the center of the land of Canaan. And it would become a very important place for the Israelites. It's a place where covenants would be made and covenants broken. It is at Shechem where later on Jacob will tell his household to put away their idols. It is a place where he will then build an altar and worship God as a way of dedicating himself to the Lord. It is at Shechem, well really Shechem, it's in a valley, it's between these two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And if you read the book of Deuteronomy, one was the mountain of cursing and one was the mountain of blessing. And it is at Shechem then Joshua would give his final address to the Israelites and says, choose you this day whom you will serve. Are you going to serve the living God? Or are you going to serve the idols of the nations? Are you going to choose blessing or are you going to choose cursing? It is at Shechem where the kingdom of Israel under Solomon would get divided. So this is an important place. Or it will become an important place in the history of Israel. So Abram and his entourage, they've reached Shechem and it says to the Oak of Moreh. Now, Moreh in the original, it, it just means teeter. And most Bible scholars believe that this Oak of Moreh, it was a pagan shrine where the Canaanite priests would teach the people their pagan ways. A place where you could say their college for paganism and where people would come and worship these idols. And notice, it's not, you know, these people are not just any idol worshippers. 
It's the Canaanites. Does that ring a bell in what we've done so far? See, these Canaanites, they are from the cursed line of Noah's grandson, Canaan. Remember? And we know from that prophecy with Noah from a few months ago when we looked at it, that ultimately the Shemites or the Israelites, the Canaanites would become their servants. We know that through that prophecy. But I don't know if Abram would know that. What we do know that is that these Canaanites, they are very wicked people, very sensual and vile people. They are enemies of God and wanted nothing to do with God. They, they are people who are cursed of God. They are the line of the serpent. I want you to think about this for a moment. I mean, God has called out Abram. And Abram's left his pagan ways of idol worship and sin, and he's chosen to follow the Lord. He comes to this new land, but this, this is not some vacant land. It's already occupied. It's the land of the Canaanites. Those who are enemies of God, it's a place of idolatry. And so Abram's like, now what, Lord? What do I do now? See, the only thing, what you need to realize is, Abram, the only thing that he's going by is the word of the Lord that came to Abram first, where the Lord just said, leave everything behind and follow me and I will bless you so that you can be a blessing to others. That's all he's got. He doesn't have a Bible like you and me. He doesn't know this God other than that. And he's a young believer. And he's faithfully obeyed the Lord. He's come to this new land. And it's full of pagan idolaters. The very thing that he left behind. And, and they are enemies of God. They hate God. They are going to be hostile. I followed you, Lord. What do I do now? This wouldn't have been easy for Abram. You know, often this, this can happen in the life of a believer. When God calls us out to, by his grace, and we follow Jesus, and we take that step of faith, and we're following him, what we need to understand is it, that life will not be easy. It doesn't mean that life will not have its trials and troubles. I mean, this is something that every believer must understand, and especially young believers, you know, who've just taken that step of faith and they're trusting in Jesus and they're following Jesus and, you know, everything is like, yes, I want to obey him, I want to follow him and everything seems to be growing great and they think life now forever till they die will be a bed of roses. No, you need to understand that the life that we live here will not be a bed of roses. 
it will have its troubles and trials even when we follow Jesus. But when we are being, when we are walking by faith, and when we are being obedient to the Lord, the Lord will often reassure us of His presence with us, and He will reassure us of His promises to us from His Word, and that that's enough for us to keep going. And that's what we see uh, happening with Abram. Look at verse seven. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said. To your offspring, I will give this land. See, the Lord is reassuring Abraham, hey, you've not gone the wrong way. You're in the right place. I'm still with you. And the Lord reiterates to Abram of the promise of land. Now, here's the thing about the land of Canaan, right? It's filled with different tribes of Canaanites with their kings. I mean, we saw some of the names in Genesis 10 as we looked at the table of nations. You know, like the Amorites and the Jebusites and the Hivites and the so on, or a lot of the ites. So there are many Canaanite tribes in the land with their kings. And they're not so nice people and they hate the true and living God. And on top of that, Abram's got no child. And the question comes, how in the world is Abram going to inherit this land? It's humanly impossible at this point. Still, that is exactly what the Lord tells Abram. That he will give this land to Abram's offspring, that is to Abram's descendants. And this, and this word of promise from the Lord, it reassures Abram that he needn't be concerned about anything, that the Lord is with him and he will fulfill his promises. Now, one thing you need to understand is, you know, why the land of Canaan? See, the land of Canaan, it had a very central location. It's in the middle of the rest of the nations. So if anyone had to go from here to here, they would have to go through this land. So it's a place that will have maximum impact on the rest of the nations. That's why God had chosen this land for Abram's descendants so that ultimately salvation would go forth to the nations from this particular land. So Abram saw reassured by God's word of promise that the last part of verse 7 says, so he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. He built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. You know, perhaps Abram, as he saw the idols in Shechem, he was reminded that, hey, I was just like that, worshipping idols. I was once an idol worshipper too. And I would bow down to these lifeless idols. But the true and living God, he has called me out by his grace and has promised me a far, far greater things than I could have ever imagined. 
The God of the heavens and the God of all the earth has promised me that he will indeed give my offspring this land, this central location. And so similar to Noah after the flood, Abram builds an altar and worships the Lord. And what's an altar for? We've seen through the first 11 chapters, when that altar is there, the people of God, they offer sacrifice to the Lord. So Abram would have offered sacrifice to the Lord on this altar. See, he recognizes how great and good God is. He recognizes how undeserving he is of God's grace and blessing. Abraham's declaring his dependence on the Lord and his confessing, Lord, you are my guide, you are my protector. None of the idols, none of the idols around are my gods. You alone are my everything and my trust is in you. And so in this way, he worships and thanks the Lord. But here's the thing. Where is he building this altar? See, Abram's building the altar and he's offering sacrifice to the Lord right there in Shechem, right next to the Oak of Moreh, where, you know, pagan worship is going on and is rampant. See, Abram worshipping here, he's not worshipping God in some private room somewhere. You know, it's not even like, you know, when we sometimes go to a restaurant and perhaps give thanks for the food before it comes. And sometimes we almost say it so inaudibly like, oh, what if somebody might hear? It is public, but it's almost like we're afraid to pray to the Lord. That's not what Abram's doing here. He's worshipping the true and living God out in public for all the world to see. You see, even the pagans would have thought, what God is this man worshipping? I mean, we don't see any idols there he's bowing down to, and yet he's offering sacrifice on this altar. I mean, what an incredible witness this would have been to the Lord God in that dark world of pagan idolatry. In fact, even to the the servants that came along as well with him from Haran. Now verse 8 says, From there he moved to the hill country on the east coast of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abram doesn't settle in Shechem. Even though God has promised the land, the Canaanites are still there, and so now he moves from there to a place between Bethel and I. And it says he built another altar and he called upon the name of the Lord. We've seen this phrase before with the godly line of Seth. And it's really connecting Abram to the godly line of Seth, where in Genesis 4, verse 26, it said that they called on the name of the Lord. 
Just like that godly line of Seth, Abram's worshiping the Lord. He's calling on the name of the Lord. He's calling on the Lord to act according to his character. He's calling on the Lord to act according to his plan and his purposes. But what you see here is, here the Lord is not appearing. At Shechem the Lord appeared to him. Here the Lord hasn't appeared to him. So what we understand by this is Abram's holding on to the Lord. What he knew of the Lord and he's holding on to the promises of the Lord. And this would become a regular pattern of his life. And in doing so, as he's worshipping the Lord, building the altar, and calling on the name of the Lord, as he's doing this, what is he actually also doing? He's proclaiming the character of the Lord. He's proclaiming the plan and purposes of the Lord for all the world to see. And so what is he doing as a result? He's beginning to fulfill his role of being a blessing to the nations in this dark, idolatrous place that he is in. But notice also in verse 8, it says, Abram pitched a tent, and that is contrasted with Abram built an altar. Abram pitched a tent, but Abram built an altar. See, God called him out of a city when God called Abram first out of that city of Ur of Chaldeans. Now, as Abram's trusted in God and is obedient to him as he's come into this new land, Abram's concern is not to build a city for himself. His concern is not to make a name for himself. His life will be marked by living in tents. What, what does that show? It, it shows impermanence. It shows living as a sojourner, as a pilgrim in that land, that he did not belong to that world. So he doesn't build a city for himself, but what he does build is altars to worship the Lord. See, these would be markers of his dependence on the Lord and his worship of the Lord. So what he's doing by building these altars is showing that his purpose was only to make the name of the Lord great. His ties with the world, it's loose. He's just living in a tent and just going as a pilgrim from one place to another. But he's leaving strong markers of Hey, this is the Lord of the universe. This is whom I worship. This is whom my allegiance belongs to. So his purpose here, as we can see, is simply to make the name of the Lord great. Now verse 9 says, And Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. What's the Negev? That's just really the southern part of the land of Canaan. So really, when you see this, Abram's moved through the land. He's passed through the land of Canaan all the way from the top to the bottom. And he's building altars in the land as a way of saying, the Lord is in this land. Even though it's surrounded by idols, the Lord is in this land. 
And it's almost like saying, because the Lord is in this land as he's built these altars, he's saying, this is the Lord's land. It's not the land of idols. It's not the land of the Canaanites. This is the Lord's land. And, he, and he's marking it out even with these, these altars that he's building. And the route that he follows here, it's the same route that Jacob will follow years later. And then beyond that, this will be the route that the Israelites will follow as well to conquer the land in the book of Joshua. Uh, and just as a footnote, see, when the Israelites do possess the land and, and they don't do exactly what the Lord tells, tells them to do and they turn away to idols, you can understand why the Lord takes them as exiles to Babylon. See, because Babylon is the same as Babel, is the same as Ur of Chaldeans, is the same as where God first called out Abram. So when the Israelites turn away from the Lord, even in the land, he takes them back to Babylon where it all began. And it's almost as if God is saying, I'm going to start with you over again from where it all began, back in Babylon. And you're going to make your way back to the promised land. But at this point, Abram's in the land. The land is occupied. Abram will never possess the land, but his descendants certainly will possess the land many hundreds of years later. But what we see in this passage is that Abram's moving in this land like a pilgrim passing through, showing that he does not belong to this world, but at the same time, he's holding on to the promises of God and publicly witnessing to the Lord by building altars and making his name great and making his name known to everyone around. And by analogy, for those of us who are believers, this serves as a paradigm of faith, right? That we who are believers called out by God's grace, we are living in this world as pilgrims. In a world where we are aliens that do not belong to us. We're simply passing through. So like Abram, let us trust in God's promises, publicly witnessing to him and making much of him till we get to our promised land when Jesus returns. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for calling us out as your people. We thank you for your grace that you have shown to us. We thank you for every spiritual blessing. We pray that as we live on this earth with all these difficulties, that we would continue to deny ourselves, not live in our sin, not live according to the ways of this world, but we would truly live for you, making much of you, magnifying your name and, and telling others about you and help us to be confident in your promises and in what you've said till the day you return and when we will be with you forever. We pray all these things in Jesus Christ's precious name.
Amen.